This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Are you guys ready to study the Word this morning? Let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you will know that we have started our spring teaching series on the book of Ecclesiastes, where we are seeking to find meaning in a meaningless world. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, you've, pro- you've probably heard some despondent truths, but then by the end of those lessons and the end of those teaching times, we have sought to find relief and resolution to our restlessness and our despondency. And what we have learned the last couple of weeks is that life itself is meaningless if this life is all there is. We have, we have read chapters 1 and 2 where we have seen the preacher who we believe to be Solomon. He's at the end of his life and he's writing to his son. And, and he is describing the events in life, the events here on earth. And he's basically saying, look, I have pursued all things I could pursue in order to make myself happy and find meaning on earth. I've done it through possessions. I've done it through vocation, accomplishments, career, relationships, sex, art, music. You name it, I've done it. And nothing satisfies me. There is nothing of lasting value if this world is all there is. And we've seen how that phrase, under the sun, and you're going to see it several times as we make our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, but when he talks about life under the sun, it's crucial in our understanding the book of Ecclesiastes, because if you don't understand what he's saying there, then sure, you walk away very despondent and even depressed. But he's basically saying, again, if this world is all there is. Life under the sun, here, this, this meaningless existence, then sure, there is nothing of lasting value. But because Solomon was a God follower, because we are Christ followers today, we know that this world is not all there is. And so we know that life may be meaningless if this is all there is, but because this is not all there is, and because we have the life giver himself, Jesus Christ, who has called us to himself he, and he helps us interpret and find value and meaning in everything and anything we do. And so just as we've seen that life is meaningless without Jesus, and just as we've seen that our pursuit of pleasure and even the American dream is meaningless without Jesus, this morning we're going to see that time is also meaningless without Jesus. Um, God has created us as beings who are in the context of time. We understand time, we are in history itself, but also in life, we find ourselves in these recurring patterns and seasons of life that on face value, there doesn't seem any meaning at all to them. And we're going to turn to the text now. I want to read the text. This is a very familiar text, probably, even if you haven't read this passage of Scripture, you've probably heard the first eight verses, at least on the radio, at some point in your life, because the birds literally took this poem and, and put it to music about 50 years ago. They only added a couple more words. Everything else in the song is this passage. So you've probably at least heard this on the radio But then there's a paragraph following it that really illuminates to us what Solomon is getting at here and trying to find meaning to our existence and the seasons and the patterns that we see on earth that many times just leave us shaking our heads, scratching our heads, and saying, what is up with what I'm experiencing on planet earth? The text says this, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Time. Is it on our side? (laughs) Earthly speaking, probably not. Time. 29 times in these eight verses to begin this chapter. 29 times you see the word time. And it's helpful for us to understand the different types of uses of the word time in the scriptures. When you look at the Greek New Testament of the New Testament, uh, the Greek translation of the New Testament, as well as the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we know as the Septuagint, you see two basic uses of the word time. You see the word chronos. Now, this one makes sense for us because it's what we know as time and duration. So when you think about a stopwatch or you look at a clock and we measure time in seconds and minutes and then hours and days. So that's a duration, time as as a point of duration. But then there's also kairos. And kairos is time of opportunity. And this is what Solomon is referring to here, is that on the earth, under the sun, life here, our existence here, there is an opportunity for many different seasons Many different times to come and go, come and go. But if you're anything like me, and if we're anything like our neighbors, you look at what happens on planet Earth, and we can't always explain it, can we? We can't always explain why some people are born here, and then some people die here. We can't explain why calamity comes to this group of people, but this group of people was spared. We can't explain nations going to war throughout the centuries. We can't explain so many things in this earth, so many things of our time under the sun when you look at history. And so we speculate, we reason, we seek to explain. Some people fall back and they think that time is just arbitrary, That opportunities, times are just arbitrary. Seasons are arbitrary. That God just wakes up one morning and decides, well, zap, I'm going to do that. But what Solomon points us to is something completely different. When we first read verses 1 through 8 and we see this poem, we're very tempted to start looking for the application. Okay, so there's a time when I should be born. There's a time that I should die. There's a time that I should plant. There's a time that I should pluck up what's planted. There's a time that I should kill. Oh, I should kill? Really? And then there's a time to heal. You know, so we went through here and we're trying to look for the application. See, okay, so there's a time where I should do all of these things. That would miss the point of this poem entirely. What Solomon is describing is he is describing life here on planet earth and how God has ordained times and opportunities and seasons for a multiplicity of emotions, events, and actions to take place. And we're going to see a big picture truth here. There are at least three in this text I want to show you today. But this first one really sums up everything, especially in verses 1 through 8, and it's this. God controls the times and seasons for everything. That's his big point here. God controls the times and seasons for everything. This poem and the subsequent verses put uh, in the paragraph after it put on vast display the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God means that there is nothing in life Nothing on earth that is outside of his purview or control. He is controlling everything. He is in control. He directs it. He ordains time. He ordains circumstances. And there's not a single circumstance that's outside of his control. And what I hope to show you today as we make our way through this text and the rest of our outline is this should be a relief and a, and a balm of ointment on our questioning and burdensome hearts today. 
is that God controls the times and seasons for everything. Zach Eswine, he's a great writer, great preacher. Uh, He talks about this poem as a list of disquieting moments and delightful moments. And so you can go down through here, you can see it. So there are some delightful moments in life, like a time to be born, a time to plant, a time to, to heal, a time to laugh, a time to dance. There are many delightful moments on life, and there are opportunities and seasons for those delightful moments. But there are also many disquieting moments that we experience here in a world that is governed by sin. We experience death. We experience the death of loved ones. We, we experience murder on earth. We experience breaking down. We experience mourning and weeping. You go down the list, disquieting moments, delightful moments. He goes on to say, uh, Wine does, as if the preacher says to us, as you travel out there in the world under the sun, remember this about your times. There are beginnings and endings, goods and evils, things we choose and choices that we did not make but must deal with. We age, we face realities with relationships and necessities with work. We encounter varying human moods and actions. Such occasions await all of us. And if we're tempted like our neighbors or some of our family members might think, we do think it's just accidental. It just kind of comes and goes and it's just by chance. We're living just one big life of a lottery ticket, right? But what we see in the text is something very different I want to show you all the ways in which this passage points to the sovereignty and the control of God over our times and opportunities on earth. You can see this in your notes. Follow along with me. First, we see that his plans are intentional. His plans are intentional. When you make your way down through this this poem, it, it makes very plain and clear that God is specifically and intentionally giving us different seasons, different moods, and different actions in life. It's not arbitrary. It's intentionally under His control. Acts chapter 17 tells us in verse 26 that He's even very specific in in the boundaries on earth. Paul says, "...and He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth." having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You are alive today. You are living in New England. You are living in the state of Massachusetts here, or the state of New Hampshire, where literally God, now someone else may have done it on earth, but God is the one ultimately who drew the boundaries of these states. God is ultimately the author behind what your driver's license says. He has ordained this time, He has ordained this setting, this boundary for your life. His plans are intentional. His plans, too, are good. They are good. If you go down to verse 11, in, in summing up what he wrote about in the poem, Solomon says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything is beautiful in its time. It's good. The New American Standard actually translates this word appropriate. So you see, when we look at circumstances and we look at seasons and we look at times on earth, we question, we doubt, we even shake our fists at God sometime because we presume that we know better than Him. We presume that we would do a better job of ordaining and, 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 and executing the solar system and human existence than He does. But the Bible tells us here that the the circumstances, the times and the seasons that we experience and see here on earth, God says they are appropriate. And they're appropriate because they're His plans. Thirdly, the Bible tells us here that His plans are mysterious. In verse 11, it says that He has also put eternity into man's heart. We're going to look at that more in just a moment. Just hold that thought. Yet so that He cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so very quickly, he says that God has given us a taste of eternity. He's given us a little glimpse of it, but he's limited our knowledge. He's limited our ability to to explain it. And so there are many things on earth, many times and seasons and opportunities that we just cannot explain. They are mysterious because they're his plans. Fourth, his plans are eternal. You go on down to verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures, not for a season, not for a day, not for a week, but forever. His plans are eternal. Fifth, His plans are sufficient. 
He says that they endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. His plans are complete. They are sufficient. And lastly, his plans are purposeful. His plans are purposeful. In verse 14, where we look at everything around us and we're left asking the question, why? How? What if? The Bible tells us that God is not an arbitrary God. God is not guided by chance. He's not guided by some sense of random executions. But not only is he intentional, but he is purposeful in what he does. And verse 14 says this, God has done it so that people fear before him. We're gonna look at this more specifically later as well. But for now, see that God's plans on earth, his times, his seasons, circumstances, opportunities, they are purposeful. There is a purpose behind what he is doing, even if you nor I can always understand or interpret it. Philip Ryken says that God is the king of time. He regulates our minutes and our seconds. He rules our moments and all our days. Nothing happens in life without his superintendence. Everything happens when it happens because God is sovereign over time as well as eternity. Remember what Eswine said? That our lives here on earth are made up of moments that are both delightful as well as disquieting. He goes on to say this, theologically unprepared. If we are theologically unprepared, we can believe that if we or someone we love experiences one of these disquieting things, then God has singled us out, made an exception out of us, and he does not love us. Have you ever thought that? Sure, many of us have thought that before. Likewise, if we experience a delightful occasion, we can believe that God is bringing us favorably into his clique. Or on the other hand, tricking us, baiting us, and setting us up for a fall. Here it is. Listen to this. No disquiet is God forsaken. No true delight is God neglected. No disquiet is God forsaken. And no true delight is God neglected. God is behind and in the midst of it all. And he has his purposes for it because he is the sovereign God the sovereign God who controls the times and seasons for everything. A second big truth we see, we actually kind of see our response here. We hear that, and I can already anticipate there's some hearts in the room that's like, yeah, yeah, but. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure I like that. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that, right? And so the next thing that we see in this text, the response, we can do nothing about any of it. God controls the times and the seasons for everything and you nor I can do nothing about any of it is what the text tells us. He gets to the end of this poem and in verse 9 he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? Now Bible students, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, where have we heard that before? You go all the way back to chapter 1, right? In chapter 1 verse 3 he asked the same question. What gain do we have for all of our life of toil? And we've talked about how that word gain is talking about it as far as uh, like a financial gain. If you think about the stock market, you, you want a profit at the end of your uh, playing in the market, right? And so if your, life, if your life was an investment in the markets, what Solomon says at the end of all these times and seasons and opportunities on life, if this life is all there is on earth, then there's no gain. There's no profit because this is all that there is. And so what that leaves us to do is to step back and we are frustrated in our occupations, he says. We can't do anything about our lot. We can't do anything about our seasons. We can't do anything about what God has ordained in time on planet earth. And so that leaves us frustrated we are frustrated and our occupations, verse 9 tells us. Because not only is there no net profit to our work at the end of our life's work, we're left toiling on earth and wondering on earth, isn't there something more? 
I mean, there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing. Have you asked the question before? Congratulations, you're a human being, right? It's like Reba McIntyre from back in the 90s. She, she famously uh, sang this song talking about a single mother who was just wondering about her lot and her plight on earth. And she famously sang, is there life out there? So much she hasn't done. Is there life beyond her family and her home? She's done what she should. Should she do what she dares? She doesn't want to leave. She just wonders, is there life out there? Or perhaps Hootie and the Blowfish get the essence of Solomon's poem and point even better. Time is wasting. Time is walking. You ain't no friend of mine. I don't know where I'm going. I think I'm out of my mind. So whether you identify more with Reba or whether you identify more with Hootie, right? We're left wondering and asking these questions. And you see, left to ourselves in a world where there is nothing but this world... Our occupations and schedules, they do toil us. They do frustrate us. They seem to trap us in a monotonous prison of time, walled in by time clocks and paychecks with the clanging of clogs and gears in the background. And all of this leads us to ask, isn't there more to my time on earth than this? You see, I actually believe that every man, woman, and child asks this question intuitively all the time. Whether we know it or not, whether we realize it or not, whether we're active in it or not, we're constantly asking ourselves this question. Isn't there something more? Why? Why does every human being share in this experience? I believe verse 11 tells us. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. See, where does that question come from? Where where does that desire to know more come from? It's because God has wired it inside of you. God has put eternity into your heart. In other words, he made you with an innate sense that this world is not all there is. And this is actually one of the things that is at the very foundation of the fact that God created you in his image. Now, if you've gone to Mill City for any length of time, you've heard us talk about the image of God, that we are image bearers of God, and that man, that, that man and woman, humanity, is God's prized creations on planet earth. We are the only part of creation made, designed in his image, meaning that we reflect him and are like him in ways that the rest of the creation simply is not. And that God put eternity into man's heart is one of the defining marks of being made in the image of God. He did not put eternity in the hearts of the animal kingdom. Now, I know that we are, we, we are dog lovers, right? As a, as a society, as a culture, we love our dogs. And, and I'm with you, man. I, I love dogs too. Dogs are really, really cool. And, and dogs, we, we dress dogs in people clothes. Um, we feed dogs people food. And we let dogs sleep in people beds. Hey, I've had dogs before in my life. I'm guilty as well. We, we even call dogs our 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 sons and our daughters, we look at our actual biological kids and say, that's your little brother or that's your little sister when we're talking about the dogs. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, right? But we can only take this so far because we're different from our dogs. God hasn't wired eternity into your dog's heart. I mean, can you imagine your knuckle-headed Labrador retriever sitting in his favorite chair staring out the window, contemplating quantum physics and the origins of the universe. No, not at all. That's absurd. Your dog may be sitting in his favorite chair and he may be staring out the window, but what he's wondering is, are you ever going to come back home so that he can go outside and pee and get a milk bone afterwards, right? That's what your dog is thinking. There's not much more complexity to his thought life. God didn't put eternity in your dog's heart. 
But he, put, he did put eternity in your heart. And he put eternity in my heart. And, and that's why we wonder, shouldn't I exist for something more than what I know? Something more, something more. Well, something more than this world does exist. And in the midst of our frustrated occupations on, on earth, you can know for certain today that you were most certainly created for more. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 43, 7, that you were created for God's glory. You were created for God's glory to find your ultimate identity, worth, and home in Him. This is why men and women and children race and strive and do everything they can on earth to find an identity for themselves because they're trying to find rest for their weary souls while the reality is that you were created for something else and as long as you stay disconnected from God and as long as you keep Him at arm's length and as long as you suppress that knowledge that this is what you were created for, you can try all you want. Pursue relationships, pursue sex, Pursue career, pursue pleasures, just like Solomon showed us last week, but you'll never be satisfied. It'll never be enough, is what he'll tell us. That's why when we hear about how God controls all the times and seasons on earth, it's actually quite liberating to step back and say, I can't do anything about any of this. I recognize my frustration So why not surrender? Instead, we try to explain it away. Instead, we try to come up with speculations and hypotheses of why things are the way they are. This is innate to us as well because of our sin nature. But what Solomon tells us is not only does our toil here on earth leave us frustrated in our occupations, but he also says that we are then humbled in our explanations. We are humbled in our explanations You see, the knowledge of God in eternity, God wrote into your heart. However, that knowledge that he wrote into your heart about eternity has its limits. It's a very limited knowledge. It's a very limited awareness. Look at the rest of the verse. He put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so verse 10 tells us that we are very busy with our lot and toil here on earth. We're busy working, we're busy trying to explain, we're busy speculating. But the scripture says, it'll only take you so far. You can only know so much. And the reason you can only know so much is because God has designed you that way. So keep trying to search it out, keep trying to figure it all out, but you'll be just as frustrated at the end as you are today. Jesus said this in Acts 1, verse 7, before he left to be at the right hand of the Father. He says, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, Jesus echoes Solomon. And so as much as humans want to explain life and speculate about what has, is, or will happen on planet Earth, our knowledge is so limited. Our perspective is so short-sighted. And the Bible tells us that that should humble us. That should humble us to recognize our limits, our inabilities, our humanity. Remember in chapter 1, our lives are described as a vapor in terms of eternity, in terms of time. We're literally here today, one moment, and gone the next Here's what our perspective is like. What if all you knew of the Star Wars franchise was the final scene from The Empire Strikes Back? You know the last big epic fight scene in The Empire Strikes Back? The scene where Luke Skywalker fights Darth Vader and Vader confesses to uh, Luke that he's his daddy? Luke with yelling the epic, No! Right? Vader chopping off Luke's hand and then Luke falling down the deep, dark tunnel while the rebellion retreated. You remember that? If that's all you knew of the Star Wars franchise, you'd be intrigued. But you would have a lot of questions. (laughs) 
well, well wait a minute. What, what led up to this? Uh, what, what brought us to this moment? And, and what comes after? Um, is, is there resolution? There, there has to be more, right? You would only have caught a glimpse of the writer-director's plot and storyline of the beautiful epic he had crafted on paper and then put to the big screen. But what if you then watched The Return of the Jedi? What if you saw how Darth Vader turned away from the dark side and rescued his son Luke from the evil emperor? There would be resolution. You would see the big picture. The pain of the prequel would then make sense. This is the reality for you and me. Our momentary existence under the sun is like pushing play at the end of the second act. We can only see what's right in front of us, and even then, we only know in part. So we're frustrated because we want to know more. We want to know the big picture, but all we can see is right here. So we're restless in our explanations. We're restless in our speculation, even as we speculate about what this whole thing is about. And we're no closer to putting the whole thing together than the person attempting to write the entire screenplay for the Star Wars franchise after watching one scene in the middle of episode five. And what this limited knowledge does is it has different effects on different people. For some people, they, they can't explain it. They can't understand everything. And so what that does is it pushes them far away from God because they can't reason it out. They can't explain it. It's incomplete. It doesn't make sense. So that pushes them away from God. They want no part of God because what they can't explain can't be reality, and I don't want to be a part of anything that's not real. Ultimately, this is arrogance, because it presumes that you know better how to order the universe than God Almighty does. It puts you at the center of time. It puts you as the sovereign one who has control over everything. But then for others, what this incomplete knowledge does is it humbles us. It humbles us and it pulls us in. And it pulls us closer because, because we want resolution and we want satisfaction. And so we race to the one who says, I've created, designed, and ordained it all. I would argue to you today from the scriptures that there is relief and rest in the sovereignty of God that he controls everything every time, every season on planet earth. That is a relief. That's a relief because I can't do anything about any of it anyway. You can't do anything about any of it anyway. So why not race towards the one who can? At the expense of quoting him too many times a day, Zach Eswine also gives a great illustration of our lives in respect to the times under the sun or in this life God ordains. Our lot is like a ship. The seasons are like the wind and the waves. Seasons sometimes put wind in the sails of our lot. Other seasons toss our lot about so that it can seem at times as if our lot is sinking and that we must abandon ship. How do we retain our purpose of joy with God amid the portion of food, work, family, relationships, and place that He has given us when the seasons change? How do we do it? How do we keep our joy? How do we keep our bearing straight in the midst of this life on earth that is so influenced by sin? Well, first, we acknowledge that God controls the times and seasons for everything, and we've looked at that. Secondly, humbly recognize that you can do absolutely nothing about it, and that leads us to our big application point. This should cause us to turn to God and worship Him. This should cause us to turn to God and worship Him. The unsettled feeling in your heart, the questions that are asking, isn't there more to life than this? The frustrations in your toil and your explanations and your speculations about life, all of your unanswered questions, all of your unease about life under the sun, 
All of that, Solomon tells us in verse 14, God has done these things so that people would fear before him. He's ordained the times and the seasons. He's ordained your life in such a way that the circumstances of your life, the ups, the downs, the disquieting moments, the delightful moments, that it all would push you, pull you towards him and to cause you to worship him in it. Now, to fear God is a biblical word simply for worshiping him. You see it all throughout the scriptures. This is the response we should have to our lot here in life. So rather, rather than questioning God, shaking our fists at God, indicting God, presuming that we know better than God, or rather than shrinking back in a state of depression and fatalism, because that's a temptation too, right? What does any of it matter anyway? Let's just eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow I die, right? So rather than doing that, instead, we can respond like the psalmist in Psalm 31. And we can say, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Worship. And what he's going to show us here in this, these last few verses we're going to look at is he shows us how a life honoring and following God turns our depression, our despondency, our toil, our frustration, and all of our unanswered questions upside down to enjoy life, not just to toil, not just to be meaningless, but to have purpose, meaning, and joy in life. It's found right here. So let's look. Let's look at these five ways that we can worship him that the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us and echoed in the New Testament. We're going to draw parallels here. Number one, worship him, Christian, today through joy. Worship him through joy. The text says in verse 12 that I perceive, so here's his conclusion, right? I perceive there is nothing better now, he did this in chapter two as well. Here's where the good news is, right? So he's writing about things that really on the surface level just seem ominous and depressing and dark, right? But then he says there's nothing better. All of a sudden, there's a positive connotation. There's nothing better for them than to be joyful. Now, where does joy come from? See, joy is a deep-seated disposition that is not predicated upon circumstances. Did you hear that? Joy is a deep-seated disposition not predicated upon circumstances. Happiness is very much predicated upon circumstances. In just a couple of months, it's tax day, right? Some of you already have filed your taxes, for some people, on tax day, it's a great day. For others, it's not so happy, right? Pay up. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is deep-seated. Joy is this inner calm and knowledge of God and His sovereignty that He is good, His times and seasons are appropriate, and I can trust His ways better than what I'm experiencing Paul says it this way in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Worship Him through joy. Secondly, worship Him through obedience. Worship Him through obedience. He says there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Now doing good in society is a high mark of citizenship in the United States of America. We want to be good people. We want to do good acts. But the Bible tells us that there is no one good but God. And Jesus is the one who said that. Paul, the writer of uh, the Psalms, the writer of Ecclesiastes, and so many other places in the Scripture says that there is no good human being. You get to the end of Ecclesiastes 12, and it says that we should fear God and keep His commandments. So written even in this Old Testament book is obedience. 
obeying what God's good, good way is. Now, as Christians, how do we do that? We know how to be good. We know how to do good works. It's through Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, for by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, but it's the gift of God so that no man may boast. We've heard that passage before, right? Well, when you get down just a couple of more verses and summing up that paragraph, Paul says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So who is it that's going to do the good works in us and through us? It's God through his son, Jesus. And so you want to make sense of your times and your seasons and your life here on earth? Number one, worship God through joy while obeying his word through his son, Jesus. Number three, worship him through contentment. Worship him through contentment. Also, verse 13 says that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Take pleasure in all your toil. At the very heart of this is contentment. Is that as you're looking at your circumstances, as you're looking at your life, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, I don't want to belabor the point, but we're constantly longing for something else, aren't we? We're frustrated in our toil. We're frustrated in our explanations and our speculations. And so what we do, and I think this is one of the greatest lies of the enemy, we convince ourselves that we are not happy and we have the problems that we have because we're simply a victim of our circumstances. And if I just lived somewhere else, worked somewhere else, knew this person, made a little bit more money, was in with the in crowd, whatever it might be, we convince ourselves, if I just had that, how different my life would be. It's one of the greatest lies of the enemy. And every one of us is victim to it. Every one of us. But instead, what Solomon says as God ordains the times and the seasons and the circumstances of your life, take comfort in the fact that he controls that. And this did not catch him by surprise. There's nothing you can do about it. So take pleasure in your toil. Be content. Be content. Be a content person. Have a content heart. Grow in your contentment. Philippians chapter 4, Paul says this. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. By the way, when he wrote this, he was in prison for sharing the gospel. Might he have some credibility to speak on the issue? I've learned that in whatever circumstance I'm in, whether I'm high or low, whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm in chains or free, I've learned to be content. And he goes on in verse 13, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, to say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Are you down and out today? Are you struggling today? Are you questioning today? Look at the example of Paul. He would say, you can learn to be content even in this disquieting moment because you can do all things through Jesus Christ who will give you the strength to endure it. Here's how Jesus answers Solomon's plight, right? Worship him through contentment. Five, uh, four, worship him through gratitude. Worship him through gratitude. We should eat, drink, and take pleasure in our toil. This is God's gift to man. I want to ask you a question. And yes, this is a rhetorical question, but not so much that I don't want you to answer it in your heart. When was the last time you just sat down and for five or ten minutes to use the words of one of our sisters in here, just have a rampage of appreciation before God. When was the last time you just journaled and thanked God for the blessings that you have in your life? The person who complains, the person who murmurs and grumbles about their circumstances all the time is a person that I would argue because I know it in my own life that tells me that that person has not had a rampage of appreciation or gratitude recently. 
Because when you pause and reflect upon the goodness of God and the gifts that He is constantly bestowing on us, His children, there is nothing, there are very few things that I believe that can change our dispositions and change our disquieting hearts quicker than simply thanking God for all the blessings that He's given us. And I don't mean just doing a blanket thing like, God, thank you for everything you've done for me. No, I mean just start listing, writing them out. And then what we start doing is we look with spirit eyes and we start seeing, Father, yeah, this circumstance is hard. It's challenging and I wish it were different. But how could I even be tempted to think that you're against me? How could I be tempted? Look at what you've done. Thank you. You see, gratitude is a mark of discipleship. It's the heart of a spirit-filled Christian. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says this, Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You see, even in the midst of your low points, your disquieting moments, the best thing the scriptures can say is to be content and be thankful. Be content and be thankful, and that's worship. So here's what I want you to see. That all of our circumstances lead us, they should lead us towards the worship of God. We worship Him through joy, we worship Him through obedience, we worship Him through contentment and gratitude. Lastly, we worship Him through Jesus. We worship Him through Jesus. How do we do all of this? Why do I keep making parallels to the New Testament? Because everything that Solomon is writing about here is fulfilled in Christ. All of the disquiet, all of the murmuring, all of the grumbling, all the frustration and toil that is in our lives in response to our lot here on earth, all of that is fulfilled and satisfied in Jesus Christ. Who, Galatians 4 tells us this, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, we could even say born under the Son, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, Jesus came at the right time. And then in Mark chapter 1, whenever He begins His earthly ministry, it says again, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you want this resolution to your heart, if you want this redemption that we're talking about today, hear the words of Jesus. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Repent. Turn away. Turn away from trying to explain it all. Turn away from speculating about everything. Turn away from trying to find pleasure in something on this earth to satisfy you. Turn away from your sin. Surrender. Humble yourself. And believe in me. And believe my work. Believe what I've done on your behalf. Receive that. And time will no longer be meaningless for you. But it will be purposeful for you. It can even be joyful for you in the midst of moments that are everything but joyful. That's the hope of the gospel today. And you may be here today and you don't believe. Maybe you think you believe or maybe you're seeking some sort of moral improvement, but you've never had a moment where you have put, the, drawn a line in the sand and, and firmly planted your feet and confessed to God that you're a sinner and repented from that and turned towards Him in faith. And I would encourage you to take that step today. Because another verse in the Scriptures that talks about time is this one. In 2 Corinthians 6-2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why continue kick the salvific can down the road? Repent and believe today. But I also believe that this message is so pertinent for the Christ follower here today. And the reason is because I'm a, I'm a pastor and a shepherd. And as a, as a result of that, I'm privy to a lot of information. 
I'm privy to a lot of lives. And I know struggles are real. I know doubts are real. I know there are circumstances in this room today that are just weighing down souls and families. There are students who have so many uncertainties and so many unanswered questions for the future and you don't know what it holds. You're struggling. This message today is a relief. It's a relief. God controls the times and the seasons of everything. And you can't do anything about his timetables. And so surrender your incessant need to try to overtake him and to explain it. And receive your lot. Receive the life that he's ordained for you. And be joyful and content. Be thankful and grateful. And worship him through his son, Jesus. Our Father, we pray to you today because we recognize we need you so much. We confess to you all the ways and all the times we try to control our own lives. We confess to you today that, that we think we know better so many times. And when you send us things in your times and your seasons that we don't like, that are disquiet in our hearts, we shake our fists at you. We indict you. Because how dare anything uncomfortable happen to us in a world that's governed by sin. Lord, we pray today that we would recognize the sinfulness of our world, the brokenness of it, but that we wouldn't spend so much time looking at the sinfulness and brokenness of other people in the world and miss the point that we ourselves are sinful and broken and we contribute to this toiling life under the sun. And Father, cause us to run towards the gospel today. And so rather than being depressed by these truths, rather than being brought down low and just beaten up today, I pray that we would run towards the gospel and that we would find relief, that we would find satisfaction, that we would find delight to our disquiet. And we pray that you would do that through your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, as we respond today, I pray that we would respond humbly. I pray that we would respond personally to you. And ultimately, I pray that we would respond in worship. And we pray that you would be honored as a result and that we would have blessing as a result. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.